Hi, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to speak and taking time out of your day to listen to me at the 2022 uh, James Fetzer Conspiracy Theories and False Flags Convention. I have been speaking at this for the last three years, so I am honored to be here again, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to listen to what I have to say. What I'm going to be talking about today is big picture stuff on big tech, global domination, and using them as a weapon to control, to control everything. And I'm going to lay out a story on, on how much dominance they have and the power they have and how incredibly dangerous it is for our country and the world for them to have this much power and why it's so important that we stop them. We hear all the time about their uh, censorship, big tech, we're all censored. Anybody who's legit anymore is censored. If you're not being censored, then you're parroting the narrative and you're not legit. I mean, that's really what it's come down to. And so everyone's been influenced and affected by this. Everyone. It's worse for the people, I say, for the people who don't get to hear the information than the people who don't get to speak about the information. You're affected even more because your mind isn't allowed to expand to learn about the new things or about different ideas. But at the end of the day, everybody's affected because we're not able, humanity isn't able to flourish. We're not able to grow. We're not able to change. We're not able to deal with the tyrants that are currently holding office right now or manipulating the people who are in office right now, which is what really is going on here. Before I dive into this, I want to give you some background about me and why I am so passionate about this area. First, my background is computer science. I have an engineering degree from the computer science, from the engineering school at the University of Minnesota. I also have an emphasis in business information systems from the Carlson School. And I, I started my MBA program and I finished about oh, a little over half and never finished it because I started a business that took off and became a multi-million dollar company. And I learned from there. But my, the beginning of my my career, I started in high tech. And I worked at US West, which was one of the baby bells. It was the beginning of the internet. And I rapidly got promoted. And I became the director of enterprise networking systems, where we were the backbone. We designed and, and managed all the systems that was the internet part of the company for U.S. West. At that time, U.S. West had 75% of the frame relay market. The frame relay market was really the backbone of the internet at the time. So we were talking to all the big players when the internet was being was taking off. I was really young and I didn't really quite understand what I was in the middle of, but it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about the power of data so I did a lot of data modeling and, and it was really a data focused environment that we were focused on. And it taught me a lot about the power that data along with the internet, what it means and how, how much, and how much influence it can have on the lives of people. And you couple that with people that don't have the right intentions or they are tyrants or they want to control the world and now we have a problem. If you have the technology geared at somebody who is or with people who are well-meaning, they care about humanity, there's amazing things we can do. And 
And incorporated into that, we are, have a good system for weeding out bad apples and making sure that those that have ill intentions are constantly being weeded out. And we're healing those children from the time that they're little. We grow them and nourish them and heal them so that they don't turn into the maniacs, the psychopaths, the sociopaths that now are flourishing all over the world. Today, we have the power that I was talking about before, and I'm going to talk about in this interview, and, and that I'm going to talk about a little bit more in the show. We have this power in a small hand, group of people's hands that are sociopaths, psychopaths, who want to dominate and control the world. And they're using the big tech companies to do that and some other things. But the big tech companies are their major tool for doing it. And I want to talk about who these companies are. For, I'm going to start my slideshow. Okay, this first slide, this is the big four. We got Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google, and Amazon. These big four are in the top five largest companies in the world. The only one that's missing is Saudi Aramco, which is the oil company coming out of Saudi Arabia, which is rated number two in between Apple and Microsoft. If you look at their market value, Market value is what their stock is worth, it accumulated their entire stock. You can look at it based on sales or what their value, you know, what somebody would buy something for. So if you're going to buy a t-shirt, the market value of that t-shirt is what you paid for it. So that's why you use the stock value because that's what people have paid for this company. Apple currently has a market value of $2.35 trillion, which is just enormous. And then we have Microsoft at $1.898 trillion. And, and I also want to mention the market values have gone down quite a bit just recently as they're laying off workers in mass, which is another issue. But Alphabet's stock is currently, or market value is currently at 1.3 trillion. And Amazon, just a little over a month ago, they're at 1.2 trillion. And just yesterday, they're, they're at 974 billion. So they have been fluctuating quite a bit because of the recession that, that we're in. And the media is acting like we're not in a recession at all. And they're fixing numbers. It's really quite incredible the power they have. They're telling people the economy is just fine and they're manipulating numbers to make it look like that. But the main street is feeling something completely different with inflation. It's, it's quite incredible the power these people have. Now I want to look at, after you look at those top five companies, Saudi Aramco has a market value of 1.9 trillion. Then there's a huge drop to number six, which is Berkshire Hathaway, which is 695 trillion. So it gives you an idea of just how big these companies are. These are the most powerful corporations to ever exist in the world. Now we're talking Saudi Aramco is up there with them and that's the petrodollar. We're talking oil and energy and you know all, all these things. It's incredible how powerful they are. And they're so dangerous to freedom. We can look at what Apple just did recently where they turned off the airdrop functionality for the Chinese protesters so they couldn't communicate anymore. They have the, their largest factory in China, and I believe it has over 100,000 employees, and people had to live there because um, they have that zero COVID policy. And, you know, people are fed up and they're striking, and, I, and it's all over the media. But the, 
seriousness of this is that Apple turned off their ability to communicate privately. They track and they trace everyone who has a phone. I would say they're still not as bad as that sounds. They're still not as bad as Google yet. And we're going to talk about Google. Microsoft is Bill Gates. We know how bad he is. He's no longer the chairman of the board and CEO, but he's backed out. And that's probably a good thing for the world. But he's now doing his uh, vaccine shenanigans, which is a problem. He has millions because billions because of Microsoft. What makes him so powerful is most companies in the U.S., it uses their systems, their software. So that's a problem. It's not as bad as Alphabet again. And we're going to talk about Alphabet last or Google. And then Amazon has a huge presence on in retail, which we all see. It's huge. The retail companies and uh, people who are selling things feel very threatened by Amazon's presence because they're just all-encompassing. But that's not the most dangerous part of Amazon. The most dangerous part is their software and system services that they do for the internet, where they have all these canned tools for businesses, and so many businesses use them around the world. The only company that I have found that really competes with them is Yandex, which is out of Russia, and that's their source company or their base company or their base home. They do have an office in San Francisco. That's the competitor to Amazon from managing all their systems environment from behind the scenes. It's a big deal. It's not what most people see, but it is what software developers and um, IT specialists and those who are running companies see on a daily basis. That's power. The next one is Alphabet. I got to talk about Google because I believe, and this is what the presentation is really going to be about, is Google and the power they have and how dangerous they are. I think they're the most dangerous company for freedom right now. And we are dealing with uh, tyrants behind the scenes running Google, which is also YouTube. But it's more than YouTube and it's more than just their search engine. And we're going to talk about that. But if you look at what they have right now, they have 92%. This is back in March 2022 from stats that I have. They have 92% of the worldwide search engine considering YouTube and Google. That means that there are some countries that only have Google or YouTube as a search option. We have about 78%, it keeps fluctuating, keeps going down, thank God, of the number of people using the Google search engine here. The problem is, is that many of these other search engines that people are using are still using the Google algorithms and base engine. Now, DuckDuckGo is a privacy uh, browser, so they're not tracking everything, but from what I understand, they're still using Google's software and their engine and base algorithms. So that's a problem. So we have a problem with all of these guys. And let's move on to more about Google and Alphabet. Really, it's Alphabet. Google changed their name to Alphabet. Google's parent company, Alphabet, owns a significant portion of over 400 companies. It's like 580 or something. And I go into that a little more. They're in everything. And just look down this list of all the things that they're in. It is incredible. Okay, they're in every market. They, they're in healthcare. They're in science and tech. They're in energy. They're in investment. They have a company called GV that invests in startup companies. And they have Uber and Lyft and Slack, 23andMe, FarmWise. I mean, it's every single sector 
They have Antiva Biosciences, which is a healthcare company, but it's also on aging. They're doing a lot of DNA editing, gene editing, which is another problem. They're doing gene editing in their companies that they're investing in or they own outright, yet they are censoring those people who are talking about gene editing. They were doing that big time a couple years ago. I don't know what they're doing now. Everything is in flux. But a couple years ago, I knew friends who were part of gene editing companies who were being shadow banned and censored. I believe it's worse now than it was then. Now we have uh, Capital G, which is their investment company that invests in companies that are later stage. They're not startups, so they're already showing a good profitability and they're a later stage company. And we're talking 55 companies that they're invested in that way. So they have presence everywhere. Plus they own companies, another 400 or so companies. And I have some of them listed here in science and tech and energy. They're in everywhere. And then they use their media, which is many different companies, the biggest being Google search and YouTube, to control what people see and the paradigms and the narrative that people see, but they also use it to benefit their own companies. That's antitrust, that's a monopolistic power. That's something that we need to go after and shut down. They have them, they're so powerful that they shouldn't have this ability, but they're using it and they're using it even more. They're partnering with the WHO, the World Health Organization, and they're partnering with governments we know they're partnering with the U.S. government. That information is all coming out in lawsuits. I want to talk about X Development. This is another major company that this is their in their research arm. There, it's actually pretty cool. I mean, when you look at it, if if these people weren't so evil, then it would just be this amazing thing where they're looking at solving the world's hardest problems difficult problems, and they're putting money behind coming up with solutions. That's their advertising, and that's their BS behind it, their marketing. But they're using this as a research arm to feed all of the companies that they own. They used it to figure out how to provide internet service to rural areas using hot air balloons. <laughs> They've used it to develop drone technology for delivery. And they're using it for genetic modification and synthetic biology. So this is what we're dealing with. So I'm going to show you. It's a kind of a long little video. I just took a clip of it, but I think this is an important section of a clip from one of their scientists that came up with the ability to edit a cell. This is 10 years old. I want to talk about the power that they have, the inventions that they're coming up with within Google's X Factory called Moonshot. Okay, so I'm going to play this right now for you. And that means that a few discoveries become so large that they solve not for one X, but for multiple Xs. And that's what makes this area so interesting, right? The argument I'm going to make is that when you take a diagram like this and you begin to talk about synthetic biology, it actually becomes something that looks like this. The overlap, the Venn diagram, just becomes huge. And really unintended consequences as you go forward. So in this context, let's take a look at this little creature, right? So this is the world's first fully programmable cell. And some people thought that was a reasonably big deal. In fact, some people thought that was a science discovery of the year. And that came out of a discussion in a bar, Landini Brothers in Virginia, and about the fourth scotch, Craig Venter, Ham Smith, Dave Kieran, and I said, wouldn't it be really cool if we could program a cell from scratch? 
much as you program a chip on a computer. And four years and 30 million bucks later, that little baby's born. And then the question becomes, okay, so how'd you make this thing? And basically, you, you take four jars of chemicals, and you have these little robot arms, and then they assemble like Lego blocks, 100 piece, 100 mega nucleotide base pair pieces, and then you start playing March Madness, right? So you just take this bracket, and you tie it to this bracket, and you tie it to this bracket, and you go from 1,000 base pair cassettes to 10,000 to 100,000 to a million, and you get the world's largest organic molecule. And then all you have to do is you have to come up with a technology so it doesn't break when you manipulate it, then a technology to put it into a cell, and then a technology for the cell to boot it. But other than that, it was easy. Here's the impact of this stuff, right? And what's really interesting is you're getting high school kids and college kids thinking about how do you begin to assemble simple, standard, interchangeable parts in loving cells. And if you can do that, that is a big deal. So as you're thinking about the consequences that you're beginning to get these early menus and you're beginning to get, you know, off-the-shelf parts, call it a radio shack for biology, where you can get cell death or conjugation or motility or odor production or sensing. And you're, you're simply going into the little radio shack and saying, I want some of this and I want some of this and I want some of this and I want to plug it in. And really what it means is that biology is just about the stage where we all started playing with things that look like this. Right? So that's about where we are in synthetic biology and cell growth. So you can make the light, you can make, you know, the buzzer, you can make this, you can make that, etc. It's not really sophisticated, you're not at the computer, you don't have the Intel chip yet. But boy, do these systems move fast once they start to solve for X. And as you're thinking of the consequences of this stuff, here's 2007, and by 2007 at iGEM, you're already beginning to have this Venn diagram overlap between electronics and biology. So you're beginning to build, you know, divide by two circuits and switches and print laser construction and wave patterns, you know, all the stuff that you used to do in Tripoli. Now, the interesting thing in this system is here's an article that was published in October 2011, and basically you're beginning to be able to do these things and construct these things on a predictable basis. And again, that's a big deal. Right? Because if you move from one-offs to predictable, simple systems that are modular, then you can begin to really think about building these fabs in an interesting way. You can take very simple components, like this Tokyo Tech iGEM project, and say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to engineer cells so they basically oxygenate. We're going to do it so they don't freeze. We're going to do them so they don't sunburn. And that's not terribly complicated. Okay, in genetic engineering terms, people kind of went, yeah, so what? Except that if you do that and you put it in a rocket and you shoot it at the Martian ice caps, it lands on the ice caps, it begins to create an oxygen atmosphere, and what they want to do is they want to terraform the planet. Just mildly ambitious, right? And as you're thinking about these components, there's two really big differences between what's going on in digital code and what's going on in life code. The first thing is these systems were moving in parallel for years. So you've got Moore's Law up there in white. You've got cost of base pairs or the cost of genome or the base pairs generated, whatever measure you want. And they're moving along and they're happy and they're toying with each other. And then something happened in the summer of 2007. And this thing just dropped off a cliff. Right? Really different system. Really big divergence. 
Let me give you an order of magnitude of this divergence. So cost of sequencing a gene goes from about nine million bucks to $10,000. Okay, that's a drop of 800 times. Let's just put that in digital terms. Computer costs over the same period fell by four. So what's the impact of this stuff? We're now generating life code about three times faster than we can build computers to store it or build pips, pipes to ship it. And there's going to be a crossover point here where there's going to be some very, very large companies because we haven't had to ask and answer the question, can we build fast enough to store it or transport it or triage it? And that digital world, that life science world is going to be a really interesting intersection. Here's a second big difference. No matter how you program a computer, you will not have a thousand computers when you come down in the morning. It is a big deal to have software make its own hardware. It means the system scales at a different speed. And that's what makes this system so interesting, right? It's programmable, standardizable, it's moving a hell of a lot faster than the digital revolution, and it scales fast. So you can go to a little startup like ExxonMobil and say, what would you like me to program? Well, for some reason they chose fuels. Imagine that. So we started programming in San Diego, algae to make fuels. And then we started scaling, and this is what our little greenhouse looks like. And now we want to become modest little farmers. We want to build a farm that eventually looks like this. Now the interesting thing is if you can program a cell on a simple standardizable basis, well, you can make fuels, or you can make textiles, or you can make petrochemical derivatives, or you can go out to Novartis and make a vaccine and take care of the problems of contagion in about two weeks, manufacturing a vaccine for everyone in the United States from sequence. And as you think of the consequences of this stuff, how we make stuff, where we make stuff, is going to absolutely fundamentally change to the point where DuPont today is getting 40% of its earnings from life science products. This is not just little startups in the People's Republic of Cambridge. Okay, first of all, this scientist, it doesn't mean that he's evil because he's doing this. He's, if you go, I have a link to this video. If you go and you listen to this whole thing, he's advocating at the end of us bringing out medication sooner because so many lives are being lost because people aren't getting access to medications that they need. There is a good side and a dark side to almost everything that goes on. I don't know anything about this scientist, but I do know that he was part of the team that came up with the ability to edit cells and use cells as if it's part of a computer plug-and-play kind of situation. This was 10 years ago. So it gives you an idea of the power that they have. You notice that they talk about vaccines at the very end, being able to quickly churn out vaccines and being able to edit the DNA in the vaccine to be able to put them out quickly. That's what he's getting at at the end of this video. And they had the idea and the basic beginnings of this 10 years ago. And actually, I think the military had it sooner. What happens is they develop this stuff, the military finds it, and then they go farther with it. And so does Google. And there's partnerships going on. Google's also partnering with their AI technology. They have an AI lab with NASA. They are everywhere and they're in every sector, and they're using their media to control everybody's minds and abilities to understand what's going on. And that is the danger that we have. So how are they controlling people? That is the question, right? Well, they're oppressing speech. You don't get to hear things. You don't get to see things. 
it used to be when we first looked at the internet, we could find all sorts of things. Now we can only find maybe five pages of results and those pages keep duplicating. There's been many people that have analyzed that. It's not just on Google search. It's on Yahoo. It's on Bing. It's on DuckDuckGo. It's everywhere that you only get to see the first five pages. And so you don't get to see things. You only get to see what they want you to see. They disappear people. So who are being censored? Well, of course, journalists are, independent thinkers, doctors, politicians, anyone who has too large of an audience or following without the right message. And so that could be almost anybody. I mean, if you have, if you're in a group and you're putting out messages they don't like, they'll censor you. If you have a large following, they for sure will cancel you. And that's what we're dealing with. What are their methods? They're shadow banning websites, meaning that you, just like I was saying, when you search for something, you can't find it. They're doing it. Even if you put in the exact name, a lot of times you can't find that website. But they're making it very difficult to get to uh, websites. Just like uh, there's uh, Marianne Hanin, who spoke yesterday. She did a wonderful article uh, a couple years ago, and I have it posted on my website on how they're doing this and making people disappear. And she talks specifically about Dr. Mercola, how he had, he went down 99.9% of the traffic he used to have it on his website, disappeared when they started shadow banning him. And then they took down his and tagged his website altogether. But that's what a lot of us are dealing with. And then the other thing is, is that you'll get very little publicity. If they want it to disappear, it'll be black. They won't talk about it at all. The mainstream media will completely ignore you. Because if you have a really good message or if you have stuff that they don't want you to see, even if they smear you, they do not want your name in the media at all because even if they smear you, then people will search you out and then learn the truth on their own. And they don't want that. So they completely go dark on you. And I, and I'm going to talk a little bit about James Fetzer's lawsuit at the end. And I think there's, there's a lot of psyops going on with that as well. And it ties into this. And I'm going to just talk about a few things at the end as I close it out. But who are they promoting? Well, they're promoting anybody who makes them money, right? If they're going to make the big pharma, that makes them money. They're promoting anybody that they have political alignments with, the government, World Health Organization. They just, Google just announced they're doing a partnership with the World Health Organization. They are promoting anyone that has the narrative they want to promote and they want you to see things a certain way. So they are also using whatever they can to get people to speak in the way that they want. There's blackmail, there's money, there's pressure, political pressure. Notice how so many politicians won't talk about something that is actually really politically popular. They still won't talk about it, and that becomes comes down to blackmail. Blackmail is a whole other subject. It controls so much of our world. It's I always say it's the currency of the powerful. And it really is. The more you dive into it, it is, it is everywhere. Epstein is the tip of the iceberg. I was at Jimmy Boots or Detective Rothstein's house the day Epstein committed suicide. You know, of course, he didn't commit suicide the day he was killed. And he told me right out, he goes, Sarah, he said this. You know, he goes, well, of course, that's convenient. He knew right away what happened. But he also said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. They're everywhere. This is their mode of operation. And that's what people don't understand. They, this is how they control people. It might not just be with children, which is what the, the ugliest part of what they use. They'll use whatever they can to blackmail people. 
And that's their currency. They want to control people. They figure the ends justify the means. And this is our intelligence agencies doing it. And anybody with a lot of money and power. And, the, and what else they do is the people they want to promote are first in the, in the search displays, you know, the authoritative news. And the authoritative news are anybody that follows a narrative, which means they're liars. Most of them are liars. And they do say stuff that is true, but then they also say a bulk of things that just parrots a narrative that is based on false falsities and lies. And we're force-fed that at the top of these search engines. Um, they rank higher on lists. They um, get more views. Some of them are, are fake, as we know. YouTube uh, puts fake views. They also put fake views on people who are popular and make them a lot lower. If they're saying something that is... Uh, that they don't want people to hear, suddenly, like our our Ninth Circuit Court hearing, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, that had a lot more views than what they said. They reduced it. It had over a thousand. It had probably thousands. But the night before I looked at it, it had about a thousand views. The next morning, it had a little over a hundred. So they're even censoring the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And those people simply, the people they want to get the publicity, they get the bulk of the publicity. Remember Ron Paul, when he was running for president, they wouldn't even say his name. They'd skip over his name. They do. There was all those skits showing a comedians talking about how the fact that they would just ignore and not even talk about him. That's how they do it. Okay. So we talked a little bit about Google. We, I want to talk about the lawsuit that we're in and how important it is that we continue fighting Google. And we did get results from it. And so I'm going to talk about that. The The judges came back. But the, the point of our lawsuit is that we had a group of 15 independent journalists who joined forces and sued Google and YouTube for deleting our channels on October 15th, 2020. Our group had more views and subscribers than any mainstream media channel on YouTube at the time. That includes CNN, Fox, MSNBC, PBS, etc. That was a threat to the establishment and they needed to take us down. And they took us down right before the 2020 election. And before what came out was Hunter Biden's laptop story, which we know is true now. And they were sense they wanted to censor that and shut down that. They wanted to shut down anybody who questioned the rigged election. They wanted to shut down anybody that were talking about alternative treatments with COVID. They wanted to shut down anybody talking about problems with the mRNA vaccine. They wanted to shut us down because we would have messed up their agenda and their narrative. And Google and all these other social media platforms were partnering, and it's all coming out now, that they were partnering with the government to do this. Our claim has three points to it. We're saying that they breached our contract because they took us down. They changed the contract the moment they took us down. And we were supposed to have time to be able to take our, our videos down. We were supposed to be warned about it. They didn't do any of the things that were in their contract. They also have Section 230, which is their immunity clause that provides mono, that provides a monopoly protection from them. They are able to build up this monopoly with government protection and it is out of control. And now that we're seeing that the government is partnering with them, now we have a state actor claim. So, so that means that Google is acting on behalf of the government. Basically, I think they built up these companies, specifically Google, to be able to 
hide behind Section 230 and be able to control speech behind a big corporation like this. And so we have to stop it. They have immunity clauses on dozens of corporations and organizations around the world that are implementing this agenda. We have the same problem with the World Bank, with um, the green energy uh, organizations. They are using immunity clauses to be able to get by with not being able, with, with no transparency and to be able to do whatever they want with immunity. And that's what they did here with Section 230, and they're using it for their benefit. But now we know how much the government has been partnering. All this is coming out. Google's case, they're claiming that Section 230 gives them the right to do whatever they want. It's their overall immunity clause to do whatever they want when it comes to speech. Um, they can leave up their child trafficking websites and or channels, and that's protected under Section 232. So they can take down those of us who are fighting child trafficking, leave up the channels that are promoting child trafficking, and then are protected under Section 230 by the U.S. government and our judicial system. That's what this Section 230 is allowing them to do. They're also claiming that they acted alone and the government had nothing to do with it. So it's a lie. All the information coming out is showing that they were partnering with the government. It's all coming out. But they're lying and saying they did it on their own. And they also said that we, they removed our channels because it was against their policies, which some of us were up for 10 to 15 years without a single warning. And then suddenly, two weeks before the election, they take us all down. Right after they subpoena all the CEOs to Congress to discuss the fact that they need to censor us more, after the, the most powerful woman who ever held office, Nancy Pelosi, who was the leader of the House of Representatives, saying that if we don't censor, if you don't censor, that Section 230 is a gift and we will take that away from you. That's a threat. It's coercion. So we have all this happening. It wasn't coincidence that this happened right before the election and right after they did this and subpoenaed them to Congress. So our case is very strong. We have a case called Ban on Books, which um, was a New York publishing company and the distributor decided because New York had a council and they were deciding what books they wanted to censor, they didn't pass a law, but they created a list. And a police officer went to the distributor and said, these are the books we want you to censor. The distributor censored them, took them off the shelf. The publisher sued them. The Supreme Court came back and said, you can't, this is acting as a state actor because the uh, New York council, even though it wasn't a law, they gave you a list. And that's acting as a state actor, and it's against the Supreme, it's against the Constitution. And our case is so much like that case. In fact, ours goes way beyond their case as far as what we have as president. And, you know, the, them being subpoenaed up to the, uh, su to the House of Representatives. They also passed, the House actually passed resolution for censorship and to have the FBI actually be their arm to to enforce it. And that's, and Zuckerberg came out and said the FBI actually did that and told them specifically what channels to take down. So we know that this is what's going on. This is our um, Ninth Sort Court Circuit Court of Appeals. This is our attorney at the Circuit of Appeals. We are now, we got the results back. So we got our results back. And unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit did not side with us, which should be expected. 
I was saying that we needed to pray for the judges that they'll do the right thing because the ju these judges are very blackmailed. They're very influenced politically. So we knew it was a likelihood that they could be influenced this way. And we, I mean, that's, that's what happened. But there were so many weird things that happened with our case. And I, I want to walk through some of these things. First of all, they were censoring the Ninth Circuit and our hearing. I already mentioned that, that the night before, the day it was airing, we had thousands of views. We at least had a thousand views or close to that because that's what I personally saw. The next morning when I woke up, it was back down to like a hundred views. So I know that they were censoring that specifically. The next thing is that the decision came out very fast. Usually they take about two and a half months on average. Their website says anywhere from three to 12 months and on average is about two and a half months, but ours came out in four weeks. Lightning speed. The decision didn't, didn't appear to be written by any of the judges. It was not, usually in one of these decisions, there's one judge that that puts their name to it and writes a decision. None of the job judges or all the judges, I mean, it, there just wasn't a specific judge on this decision. That's rare. Our attorney hasn't seen that before with the Ninth Circuit. They usually have one judge that writes up the opinion. The other thing is the decision ignored our arguments and, and mostly just parroted Google's defense. It was as if Google wrote it for them. I mean, honestly, it failed to address or even mention our best Supreme Court case, which is the ban of books that I talked about earlier. And unfortunately, it suggests that the Ninth Circuit has been influenced by politics and maybe blackmail. I don't know if it's blackmail or if it's just politics or they're just, they care about their own career. I don't know. But the fact that they didn't even mention our uh, best Supreme Court case and, and failed to argue why that doesn't stand here is is incredible. The next thing is the decision forbids us to amend our case, which is also incredible because all this information is coming out from the, you know, the Missouri AG that's suing um, big tech and the government. They're suing the government, the Biden administration over uh, the collusion and the partnering that they're doing big tech, but they're forbidding us to amend it when we go back to court to um, allow this. Now, when you go to the Supreme Court, we can't amend it. But what, what we're asking for is for the Supreme Court to allow us to sue. And if we go in to sue again, we want to amend it with the new information that came out because that helps our case. And they're forbidding us to do that, which in and of itself is really highly questionable. And so they pretty much just wanted to shut this case down. But the weirdest part is that, to me, it's the weirdest part, but I guess this is not that uncommon, but it is uncommon with a case like this where the law isn't set yet. And what they said at this case is going to be unpublished, meaning that Google can't cite it. And so they can't, anytime they go to court with somebody else, they can't cite this case. For, for law that is already set and well-established, this is common procedure because you have so much out there that's already established that you can just refer to this. This is not established law. So for it to be unpublished is very interesting. Our, our advisor, who is also a past Ninth Circuit Chief Justice, told us that that means, well, first of all, he said that the judges are wrong. We should have won this case. The next thing he said was that uh, this means that they're sending a message to Google and that, well, we won, he said we won the case and they're sending a message to Google. I think if we won on that front, but obviously we didn't win the case, but he says it's sending a message to Google, the unpublished part. 
But regardless, we're now sitting in a situation where we have to figure out what the best path forward is in our case. And I'm working with Tom Rentz. And if anybody's interested in looking at this case, I, I suggest right now we're going to set up a new website and we're going forward. We're going to, it's going to be way broadened, but give send go slash defending free speech. I have, uh, we have the case documents there and I also have this as an update on all the weird things that happened. But I'm also bringing in Tom Rents and his law firm and we're going to work in partnership on this. And he also talks about what his strategy is. We're going to, we're going to expand it. We don't know if we're going to take this case to the Supreme Court. We're going to amend it and take it. We have all sorts of things that we're looking at now. And we're going to look at it from a three prong, prong strategy, much like he fought COVID and they're winning on the healthcare front, but we are going to look at it from a legal fight. Going to look at it from a political fight and we're going to look at it from a PR media fight. And so we need all three coming together. And so we are, launching a new 501c3 organization that we are going to take this on in a big way. We're also looking to do a, it's going to be called the censored or censored conference. And we're going to bring in high profile journalists, which who have been censored, which is almost anybody that's legit. And we are going to, that's going to be a big part of our publicity, our PR part of it. But we want this to be a huge umbrella of people from all sides of the political aisle. We're talking about a First Amendment. We're talking about ending tyranny. The best way to stop tyranny is to shine, shine light on it. And the only way we're going to do that is by breaking open this, this hold on us that we have with censorship. And so we're putting it together, a coalition of journalists and people who have been censored. We're going to do a conference in March and we, we're starting to put together some of the people who are going to be speaking. And we just, we, we need a big, broad coalition of journalists from all sides of the aisle to bring and shine light on this and to work together to bring this beast down. Because it's a beast system that is going to destroy our country. And it's going to pretty much, just, it's going to destroy the freedom in the world. Not that there's a ton of freedom right now in the world, but it's going to destroy whatever freedom we have left. And I want my children, and I think you want your children, your grandchildren to have the freedom we enjoyed when we were growing up. And when I was a younger adult, which we saw, we didn't have as much freedom as we should have. Now that I know more, I know that they were slowly taking away our freedoms over the years. But man, we had more freedom. We had we used to be able to search the internet when it first came out and be able to find so many things. They've shut all that down. We used to be able to do so much when we were kids growing up. These kids don't get the same freedom that we had. And I really hope that we can bring this back because the alternative is is horrifying. Yeah, I don't think we need to stop the advancement of technology. But we need to stop the technology advancement being used for purposes of total domination and control by tyrants and psychopaths. And if we don't, then we are going to suffer for decades. I mean, this could go on for centuries that we suffer under tyrannical rule. And we have to stop it now while we have the opportunity. That being said, I want to talk a little bit about Fetzer's case. And I, I would agree with the government, the media narrative that it's the, the, it was so horrifying that these children are being killed in the Sandy Hook 
school shooting, I, that bothered me a lot that these kids were being murdered, right? I was ignorant and I was listening and I heard these kids being slaughtered and it was just horrifying for me. It bothered me for weeks. And it still is a horrifying thought to think of children being massacred like that. But you know what's more horrifying? Is for a tyrannical government to lie about something like that and to use it as an agenda item to to push through whatever agenda they have or a narrative item to push through their agenda. That's worse than the actual talking about it. So feds are coming and asking questions isn't as bad as them using a massacre to manipulate us because they knew people like me would be highly affected by children being massacred. So I have a couple questions about that. First, I want to know why did they have the sign up at telling people where to park for this event the day that this shooting happened? Second of all, I want to know why the people that went through the window, there was like eight went through the window. Why did nothing get ruffled? And why didn't they open the door to let the other police officers in? That makes no sense. And third, the biggest one, why did they have a lunch delivered into the school eating lunch while there was murdered dead bodies all over the place without bringing in and nobody went in an ambulance? Those are the three questions I have. I know Fetzer has a ton more. I don't know a ton about it. I didn't study, but I heard those three things. And I'm like, whoa, I want to have answers to that. Because again, talking about children who have been murdered is really, really bad for families and loved ones. But not talking about it when you have all these other questions in hand is worse because you're using a, a horrifying situation to manipulate the public and manipulate people like me who was who were highly affected by that massacre. So yes, this is an example of where we need to shine light on tyrants and we need to have answers. I want to know the answers to that. What happened in those three things? You're shutting them down and not letting them talk about this because of the poor families. I understand that angle. But answer those questions. You didn't answer the questions on why my, my, just my three things are a big deal. Because manipulating us over something that serious is psychopathic, sociopathic, and only the worst of the worst does that. And we need to get to the bottom of it. And the last thing you need to do is shut these people down. You need to shine light on it so we can get answers that we need. The whole Alex Jones thing, I think, is a psyop. You're, you're sending a message. Do not question these things. If you question these things, we're going to sue you to oblivion, and you will have no face in the real world. We're going to smear you. We're going to tell you that you're a joke, and nobody's going to listen to you anymore. That's what you're doing with Alex Jones. That's wrong, too, because you're taking and, and making... You don't want anybody to look at Fetzer stuff, because Fetzer stuff made me question these things. So you want everybody to look at Alex Jones, look at how much of a nutbag he is, and then you're, you're suing everybody to oblivion and shutting people down. That's wrong. So that's how I'm going to close it. I, I think we need to end this tyranny. I hope you support our cause. Again, it's going to be a big umbrella, and we hope that you're all with us on this. And again, I want to thank you for listening to me and ramble and talk about this. I think it's the most important time. And we're fighting the largest corporations and businesses and tyrants that have ever existed in, in human history. And we have to take it very seriously. We can't back down. And lastly, we need the courage 
to stand up to this, to stand up for tyrants. It's a David and Goliath situation, and we will not back down. God is on our side.